I took the safer stairs up over here <laughs> rather than the side path. It's a good idea. I should just always do that. Yeah, be in my best interest <laughs> to make sure. All right, last week, last week, um, I, I gave you all some homework. Um, we kind of went over it in, in class, so to speak, so I'm going to hope that maybe you remember it. I gave you a, a memory verse assignment for this week, our theme for the next several weeks, actually, this verse um, that we mentioned last week, 2 Corinthians 9.15 is where it was, so don't put it up yet. Don't put it up yet, Kaya, if you're back there. Um, don't, don't put it up yet. I want to see if anybody remembers what 2 Corinthians 9.15, at this point, you've had time to look it up on your phone, but still, <laughs> see if you remember it. What is it? Thanks. Close enough. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. I just want to ask the question, is anyone this morning thankful to God for his indescribable gift? Go, go ahead. Is that all the thankful you have in you? Is there a little more thankfulness? His indescribable gift goes many different directions, and we'll talk about several of those over the next few weeks. This is the theme of this outrageous series. We live in an ungrateful world, folks. I don't know if you realize that or not, but if you've ever had a conversation with anyone, that I'm sure you do, um, as a believer, you and I are called to view this world differently. We are called to see circumstances differently. Our goal is to see things the way that Jesus sees them. It's called a Christian or biblical worldview. And the more you and I study the life, the words, the teachings of Jesus, the more you and I learn the heart of God for his people and his creation, the more we begin to see things from his point of view. Now, the problem, of course, is the world is going to battle us at every possible turn. And so if we spend more time reading and watching the news, interacting with folks on that wonderful media platform, Facebook, or absorbing media of all different kinds from music to movies to whatever, if we spend more time doing those things than we do chasing after the heart and the mind of our God, then it's going to be very hard to have a Christian worldview. And we want to turn things in his direction. We want his word to be the filter that we run everything else in our lives through. That's why we're going to start every week by just remembering real quick, 2 Corinthians 9, 15, God, thank you for your indescribable gift. Tonight, we get a chance to gather together and we get to thank God together as a body of Christ nonstop for a period of time for his indescribable gifts within our lives because there are so so many. Today we'll start very simple. What gift? Well, um, if you can hear me or you can read the closed captioning online or whatever capacity you're in, if you're alive, if you're breathing, if you're thinking, functioning, I know it's Sunday morning, so functioning at some level already this morning, that is a gift. Every element of that is a gift from God. Every breath we take is a gift from God. Every new day that we see is a gift from God. I think that's a pretty good start for his indescribable gifts to each of us. Now, all of us have experienced days where it would be a stretch to call that day a gift, at least from a worldly standpoint. But from God's standpoint, he assures us that, it, oh, it was. It absolutely was a gift. It's so simple. The things that we take for granted, yet 
These things are indescribable gifts from our Father who loves us. And we're going to talk about several of those things throughout this time. Today, we're just going to focus on a few stories from another of his indescribable gifts, his word. His word, if you've never thought about the Bible as literally a gift of God, well, hopefully we can change your opinion there. Because just the fact that that library right here, this library even exists, is a miracle. This book that actually contains 66 smaller books was written by 40 different authors over 1,600 years in three different languages. It, it has survived every attack that Satan could possibly throw at it in the last 1,600 plus years. And yet, here it is. The same lies that were spread about it 1,000, 2,000 years ago are the same lies that are being perpetuated today. Nothing new under the sun. The problem, of course, is the more time we humans spend investigating the Bible, trying to prove it wrong, the more that we question it, the more, of course, it proves itself to be true time and time again. The Word of God is truly an indescribable gift for every single one of us. We must make it an absolute central part of every one of our lives. And that's going to mean something different for all of us. We're all not going to study the Bible the same way. The key is, are we reading the Bible? Are we studying the Bible for ourselves? Are we talking to God about His Word and through His Word on our own? That's essential. David was the author that reminded us to hide God's word away in our heart. Why? So that we might not sin against God. You want to talk about how to prevent sin in your life? <laughs> Spend a lot of time in here. It's amazing how that'll work. The power of God's work at work within us, his word at work within us. I say all that to say this. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. As you do that, if you're not using your phone or tablet, go ahead and put your finger in Judges in the Old Testament, because that's actually where we'll spend most of our day is in Judges, flipping between four different stories. But we're going to start off in Hebrews chapter 11. This chapter is often called the Hall of Faith or the Faith Hall of Fame for the believer. And this chapter lists so many famous, big, giant names from the Old Testament or the, the first 39 books of this 66-book library. It kicks things off with Abel, the son of Adam and Eve, who was commended as a righteous man. Why? Because of the gift that he offered to God. Then there's a man named Enoch, who we really don't know a ton about, other than he was an incredible, incredibly faithful man. And his faith was so pleasing to God that God spared him the pain of physical death on this earth and just called him directly home to be with him. And then there's this guy named Noah. Some of you might have heard about him. His faith was shown through that building of that giant boat to save humanity, his family included from that coming flood. Then there's Abraham, who left everything behind to pursue this promise that was made to him by God. And it was by that same faith that God offered him a son named Isaac. Then Abraham, in turn, through faith, offered that son back to God, believing that God could raise him from the dead if necessary. And if you know the story, in a way, he kind of did. The passage goes on to list Isaac and Joseph and Moses. The, the list, uh, the, this, this faith of the people of Israel that walked across that dry seabed of the Red Sea as they were fleeing the Egyptian army, the faith of the Hebrew army as they marched around the walls of Jericho, believing that it would fall down just like God told them. The faith of a woman, a prostitute named Rahab, who welcomed these Jewish spies into her world to save them in order that she and her family might be saved from destruction. That salvation that she was offered in that moment... <laughs> 
actually allowed her name to be found in none other than the family tree of Jesus Christ himself. That's incredible faith that that woman had. Their stories, all these stories help tell the, the tale, the, the tale of God's faithfulness to us humans throughout all of time. And then in Hebrews eleven thirty two, the author shifts gears just a little bit. And he says, what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell you about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. How about David and Samuel and the prophets whom through faith they conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were those who had been tortured, refusing to be released that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two, killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins, goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world wasn't worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. Why did he switch gears like that? Why did he change the tone of of everything? I, I think I know. As that author began to list all of these incredible heroes that they had read about, studied about growing up probably in the Hebrew world, in the Jewish faith, that list just kept growing and growing. And the descriptions kept getting longer and longer and more detailed. He had so much to share. He, he could have kept going on and on. I mean, the book of Hebrews could have been a many, 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 many chapters longer than what it is. What a story to share. But this author was wise. Instead, he cut everything off and, and he lists just a few more names. Some of the names were as famous as any in the Bible, David and Samuel, huge, powerful men within the scriptures. And then he lists the feats of others. He didn't list them by name. If you know the story of the lions, then you know he was talking about Daniel. If you know the story of the fiery furnace, then you know he was talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hezekiah, the prophet, the widow of Zarephath and the Shunammite woman, those were the two whose sons were brought back to life by prophets. He likely references Jeremiah who was tortured and whipped, Zechariah who was stoned to death, and so many other incredible examples for us to look back then into the Word of God and study their stories. But none of those are who we're focusing on today. What we're going to do is we're going to go back to the middle of that whole passage, to those four random names that are listed after those great heroes and before the summary of the others. We're going to do just a quick survey of those four. Two of those names you probably have never even heard of. Two of the names are quite famous indeed, and we might wonder, wow, those guys fall so fall short of at least some of those other names that we listed. Why are they appearing in this hall of faith? Their behavior was outrageous. Their disobedience, outrageous. Their pride, outrageous. And yet there they are in this hall of fame, if you will. So let's take a look at those four folks. The author names four names. All four of these names come from the time period of the judges, described as a, a wild era in Israel's history. And I quote Judges 21, 25, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit, or some translations I like better say, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Does that sound anything like 2022 to you? You'll learn, my friends. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, wait, you don't get to do everything I get. Never mind. I understand your perspective very much so. But anyway... Here's what we know about these four guys. A very quick summary. Gideon defeated the Midianites. Barak defeated the Canaanites. Samson kind of defeated the Philistines. And Yepta defeated the Ammonites. 
These four men are only mentioned here in the New Testament. The fact that they're mentioned means we probably ought to pay attention and wonder why. We also, we need to know that each of these four men had very big character flaws, but they're real men, real flesh and blood, heroes whom God considered honored in spite of all of their flaws. As a matter of fact, their faith might resemble some of ours. Their faith was definitely mixed with a little bit of fear, a little unbelief, a little doubt, a little pride, a little compromise, and a little too much human reasoning in some cases. God knew all of their faults, and yet here they appear and honored in the scriptures this way. Their faith in the end was a true faith, imperfect, terribly flawed, but a faith nonetheless. I want you to remember that word anyway, but God put them in there anyway. God used them anyway. We'll get back to that at the very end today. Let's start with Gideon, the second most famous name of this list of four. Gideon was, was a coward. Okay, he was fearful completely. If we go back to his time about 3,000 or so years ago, we find his story. An angel comes to him, and he says in chapter 6 to Gideon, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, Gideon doesn't exactly see himself as that, but that call from God came in the middle of the Midianite oppression of Israel. It's kind of a funny story how it would work. The Midianites were a huge army from the east who invaded on camels. Now, if you've ever seen a camel and someone riding a camel, I just can't envision someone riding in on a camel being intimidating. It's weird. Like, it, it's not, no, I don't understand why that was a threat, but for some reason it was. I don't understand it, but they were a big threat. They came every year at the same time during harvest. Just as the Israelites were getting ready to harvest their crops, they would plunder the land and then get on their camels and ride right out of town. They'd stay away till next year's harvest and they did it all again. Every year at harvest time, the Jews were losing everything they'd worked for because the Midianites would come and invade and take it all. The people of God were reduced to living in caves and out of fear of this mighty Midianite army. In other words, the Midianites were just a bunch of bullies. They didn't want anything. They just come steal lunch money and go back home every year. It's just what they would do. It's, a, it's an interesting story. So God got an idea because God does that. He had a plan for Gideon. He sends an angel, taps Gideon on the shoulder and says, hey, I'm going to use you to deliver my people from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord, very clear, Gideon, you're the man that's going to deliver my people. The angel repeats it multiple times in chapter 6 of Judges. Gideon looks at the angel and basically says, uh, me? Yes, you. Gideon's like, no, no, no. You got the wrong guy. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what my family line's from? The least of the tribes. What are you doing? No way it could possibly be me. And no, the angel says, no, Gideon, you're, you're the man for the job. Fast forward just a little bit into the story. The show is set. The men have been gathered. They're ready to fight. The Midianites are coming. The army's ready. Everybody's ready. The battle, everything's ready to happen except Gideon. Not quite ready to do exactly what God had told him to do. He's still not sure that he's the right man to lead Israel. And it's that, at that point that he asked God for his famous sign. Now, those of you that have studied God's word before, you know what Gideon's famous sign. It was that unmistakable proof that he was really called to lead him into Israel. So he set out the fleece. And he said, hey, God, all I need you to do is to make this fleece wet and the grass dry and uh, I know uh, you're right. You want me to go and do this. Judges 6, 36 through 40. But that wasn't enough, of course, because God did that. 
And so the next day, Gideon's like, well, that was really neat, God. Thank you for proving exactly it. But I need you to do one more little thing for me. I need you to make, uh, this time I need you to make the fleece dry in the ground. But could you just do that for me? And God agreed and did it. Now, see, it wasn't a sin for Gideon to ask God for a sign. That, that's okay. There's nothing wrong for that. But it was a sign of Gideon's very weak faith. He already knew what God wanted him to do. There was a plan in place. And when you look at Gideon's life, you, as a result, don't see a man of great faith. You see a man of very weak faith whom God used greatly. If you go on and read Judges 7, the, the story of the battle, you, you see that God used Gideon and 300 men. There's a very interesting process that God uses to whittle that down to just 300. He had thousands upon thousands to start with. And they sprung a nighttime surprise on that midnight army as they circled around them, made a whole bunch of noise, lit a bunch of torches, scared them all to death. They all started fighting amongst one another. And in the end, Gideon's army defeated them in a massive way. It was an incredible victory for God, for Gideon, and to get rid of the Midianites from the Israelite territory. You see, as long as Gideon thought he couldn't do it, guess what? He was right. But as soon as his faith replaced his fear, he was able to win this mighty victory for the Lord. Now, the second name is probably one you haven't heard of. His name is Barack, but he wasn't the president of the United States a few years ago. Different guy. Totally different guy. This man was very, very timid. Fear him might be the right word, probably not, but very timid. Didn't want to act on what he knew he was supposed to do. When you talk about the name Barak, you can't talk about it by himself because there's another much, much more famous name than his that we must remember, and her name is Deborah. Now, Deborah was not Barak's wife in any way. She was the only recorded, at least, female judge of Israel. The spiritual life of Israel had deteriorated to such a low that the nation was now being led by a woman. That's not a criticism of women. That's not a criticism of Deborah at all in any way, shape, or form. She was a very brave, very bold, very decisive woman who was called by God. She judged Israel because the men wouldn't step up and do the job. And after 20 years of humiliating oppression at the hands of the Canaanites, God raised up this prophetess to represent him to the people. Barak was the commander of her army. So Deborah sent for him, and she told him to go into battle. She even gave him the battle plan. She sent for him and said, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go. Take with you 10,000 men from Naphtali, from Zebulun, and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure into Sarah, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. It's a very simple, very simple plan for him. Deborah gave it right to Barak. All he has to do is rally the troops and go into battle and win the victory. But listen to his response. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't, I won't. What a manly thing to do, right? It's the man's job here. He's the commander of the army. Saddle up the horses, go face the enemy, have courage in the face of danger, but he won't do it unless a girl goes with him. Yes, that's the case. Now, if you think I'm being too hard on him, I'm not. Listen to Deborah's response. She says, and I quote, very well, I'll go with you. But because of the way you're going about this, the honor will not be yours. The Lord will hand over to Sarah and their army and everybody else to a woman. 
Yes, she said it, not me, all right? So it's not my opinion here. It's Deborah. This is exactly the way she feels. He should man up and go be a man and do his job. And she's like, fine, I'll go with you. But we girls get all the credit. Ha, enjoy. She was a great leader, but she didn't like his weak, timid, indecisive, wimpy response. Now, there was a reason for his response. I mean, it was obvious. Later on in Judges, you learn that the Canaanites have these things called iron chariots, it would kind of be like you and I going into to battle with our pistols against uh, oh, tanks. Yeah, you don't got a chance. You're done. Sorry, that's the end of it. The enemy had a huge advantage on the battlefield. So from a military standpoint, uh, this was foolish. This was a suicide mission. He shouldn't be taking the troops into battle. But God, of course, had a better plan. He flooded the river, trapping the chariots. They were immobile. They could do nothing. It turns into a decisive victory for the men of Israel. The commander of the Canaanite army escaped, but on his escape, he was tricked and he was nailed to the ground by a woman named Yael, who drove a tent peg through his temple. She called to Barak and said, hey, come here, check this out. Look what I got for you. (laughs) And there he was, the commander of the opposition's armies, temple nailed to the ground, dead before him, killed by not a man, no, no, but another woman. You see, in the end, Deborah and her cohort there get the credit. Now, was Barack a bad guy? No, he was a good guy, but he was too timid. He was unwilling to follow God into battle. Instead, he had to follow a woman into battle. And yet, we still must give credit to him. Why? Because here he is listed in this hall of faith in Hebrews 32 as a man of faith in spite of these flaws that would have been so obvious to his peers. Then there's the most famous name of the four, a man named Samson. Even if you've never studied scripture your entire life, you've heard the words of Samson and Delilah in a sentence together somewhere, even if you don't know who they are. He was the most outrageous of these four characters completely. I never understood his story as a kid because it's always one you cover as a child, which is really kind of grotesque if you think about what Samson... But anyway, um, yeah, we, we always talk about him, yet he's such a confusing character. He had an incredible story. His birth literally was a miracle. He was a gift to his parents who were unable to conceive children. He was then dedicated. His life was to be lived as that of a Nazarite. No razor was ever to cut his hair. Thus, he would be a man of great strength and be able to defeat the enemies of Israel, sometimes even with his bare hands with no help. And in the end, he did take a large swipe at the Philistines. But along the way, a woman named Delilah tricked him into revealing that secret for his strength. He was captured. He was tortured. He had his eyes gouged out. But eventually, after many years in prison, he gained that strength back and was able to kill 3,000 Philistines at once in one of the most dramatic scenes in all of Scripture. But the story, that whole story is found in in Judges chapter 16. If you'd like to read that later, you can. We're going to focus in on a few other things of Samson's life. There was so much to him. I think if if there was a thing, a, a TV program called Israeli Idol, which would have been bad since that was like right at the top of the list. Now shout not. We have American. Anyway, if there were this program called Israeli Idol, I think Samson would have got runner up. I think David would have got first place because David had it all. He had the looks. He had the battles. He had the art, you know, thing, the music. And it said that always gets the girls. So he would have won that for sure. But Samson was a close second place because he too had the looks. He had the strength. He had the spirit of God even with him, the blessing of God. But Samson threw it all away. His life was, 
was one of unlimited potential. Possibly no other man in all of Scripture had as much going for him as Samson did and yet ended with less. He had it all, but he gave it all away. You see, it is very possible to be empowered by the Spirit of God and do incredible things for him, but yet not fully yield your life over to his Spirit. Did you hear that? Do you understand that? It is possible to be empowered by the Spirit of God to do incredible things and yet not have given your life fully over to the Holy Spirit of God. Samson's life was full of contradictions. He was a man of faith with an incredible weakness for women. He was a man of prayer, but was given over to uncontrollable fits of anger. He was a leader of Israel, who lusted after Philistine women, a definite no-no for a leader of Israel. He was a man of God who lacked common sense. He just didn't make good choices. He was empowered by the Spirit, and yet he lived in almost every way by the flesh. He was never fully able to control his emotions. First, he's filled with lust, and then anger, and then lust, and then anger, and then lust, and then anger again. One minute, he's worshiping his God. The next, he's flirting with Philistine women. On one occasion, he leads the Israeli army to an incredible victory by the power of the Holy Spirit. Later, what's he do? He sleeps with a Philistine prostitute. It just didn't make sense. And it wasn't long after that that he met up with Delilah, who tricks him into revealing the source of his power, if you will, and ultimately leads to his imprisonment and eventually his death. You see, church, either we believe in the redeeming grace of God because nowhere maybe greater than Samson is that obvious that God is this kind of God, or we don't. Samson was very deeply flawed, like most of us, and he continually finds himself battling anger and substance abuse and forbidden desires, just like some of us. Sometimes he did amazing things for God, just like we all have the potential to do. And then he would turn right around and do the stupidest thing you could ever imagine. And you just scratch your head like, this guy just doesn't get it. No, he didn't. And unfortunately, neither do many of us. We make the same mistakes. We just aren't recorded in God's word having made those mistakes. But God knows. Yet in the end, he did begin to deliver his people from the Philistines, just as the angel of the Lord had said of him in Judges 13, 5. And here he shows up in Hebrews chapter 11 in this incredible list of this incredible hall of people of faith. The fourth and final name, Yepta. It's an interesting pronunciation, but it's actually the way you pronounce it. He was foolish, just terrible at decision making. He was a Gileadite. He was a mighty warrior. His father was named Gilead. His mother was a prostitute, the scriptures say. Don't overlook that last line. It means that he began life obviously kind of behind just a little bit, kind of behind the eight ball. A part of his life, probably one of the reasons he was such a great warrior was because of this fact about him. Many people knew his past, and as a result, he was constantly driven to prove himself over and over again because of who his mother was. When he grew up, it says his family turned completely against him. So he ran away and he gathered a group of thugs, a gang members, if you will, to go out and kind of ravage the countryside. He was a man from a bad background that ultimately becomes an Old Testament gang leader. But the Ammonites once again attacked 
Israel, and the men of Israel asked him to come home to lead them into battle. Why? Well, because he was their best fighter. He was their best warrior. He did accept, after some negotiation, that opportunity to come home. And he got home, and the first thing he did wasn't go into battle, shockingly. First thing he did was try to bargain and reason with the Ammonites, reminding them that he didn't believe they had any reason to attack the Israelites. They didn't agree, so they decided to do that anyway. It says, the Bible tells us that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him as he prepared to go into battle, meaning the victory was assured for sure. But it was at that moment that this man made a terrible terrible mistake that literally would haunt him forever on his earthly life. And as a matter of fact, it's really the only reason that we remember him today. He vowed in that moment that he would offer to the Lord a burnt offering of the first thing that came through his doors of his house when he returned home after fighting the Ammonites. You can read about that in Judges 11, verses 30 and 31. Now, in his mind, the first thing to come through those doors was going to be an animal of some sort. To his shock and dismay, though, it it turned out to be his daughter, his only child, his daughter, coming out to welcome her dad home. (laughs) Says he was distraught. He ripped his clothes. He said, I made an oath to the Lord and I cannot break it. For two months, his virgin daughter spent the time in the hills with friends. At the end of those two months, he did to her as he had vowed. Now, as, and she was a virgin. The actual translation of that portion says, and she had no relations with a man, Judges eleven thirty nine. Now, let's get the backstory here. It is very unlikely that he actually offered his daughter as an actual burnt sacrifice. There's lots of reasons to believe that, but when you look at the text very closely, it's pretty obvious that that didn't actually happen. A couple things. First, his, his vow was completely foolish because if he, if he sacrificed any animal that came out, he couldn't have done that because not all animals were clean and they were not worthy of being sacrificed to God, let alone a human being. You see, uh, this practice of child sacrifice, completely forbidden by God. This was a heathen practice. And at no point did God request him to do this. At no point did God approve of this vow, nor did God ever insist on him going through with this incredibly rash, irrational, foolish vow. The vow was unnecessary and it was dangerous. God had already promised victory to him. When you study the text closely, the language used and all the circumstances that surround the event indicate that, yes, he did sacrifice her to a life of service in the tabernacle where where she was to remain a virgin the rest of her life. She then in turn sacrificed one of her most important gifts to humanity, and that was the ability to have children. Yephthah sacrificed his humanly family line. Not having any other children, he sacrificed the ability to continue his family line any further than that moment since she was an only child. Now, this was a really sad end for him because he had just redeemed his family line. Through this great victory over their oppressors, he had now redeemed his family history from where he came. It was an incredible story. But you see, instead of doing what was right, he did what was right in his own eyes instead of consulting God. Now, I asked the question, how on earth could all of this happen? What are we to think about four folks like this, outrageous heroes of the faith? How can we make sense of this? Gideon was afraid to answer God's call. Barak was so timid, he needed a woman to tell him what to do. No comments, ladies. Samson couldn't control his emotions or make a good choice to save his life. 
And Jephthah made a foolish, unnecessary vow. These were seriously flawed men, yet they made this incredible list. Here's what we can glean from that. If there's room for them, there's room for us. (laughs) Down deep, these were men of faith who believed God and were willing to act on what they believed. Their huge flaws cannot be overlooked. They're part of their story, but they don't keep them out of this hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Why would God use men like this? God uses flawed people to demonstrate his grace so that when victory is won, he alone gets the glory. (laughs) Paul says something very similar, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We read this a few weeks ago, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show us this all surpassing power is from God and it's not from us. We're just clay pots, (laughs) We're just regular, ordinary kitchenware, easily cracked, often broken. We're not expensive china like you might have bought on that fancy website, Amazon. No, no, no. We're we're Walmart brand best at best. Useful, but highly inexpensive. We're all cracked, chipped, faded in little different ways, but yet God's grace, he uses us anyway. And to him, remember, you and I are priceless works of art. I ask you to remember that word anyway from the very beginning because it's essential. Gideon was fearful, but God used him anyway. Barak was timid, but God used him anyway. Samson did a whole lot of really dumb things, but God used him anyway. And Yepta made this terrible, awful, evil mistake, honestly, and yet God used him anyway. Church, either we believe in the redeeming grace of God or we don't. If we do, then we won't be surprised that God includes these four incredibly flawed heroes in the hall of faith. And quite honestly, we'll be very glad that he did make this list because it means that God can use people like me and you too. Our faith is no different. It's imperfect like every one of these. And truthfully, if you look at the stories of all of those individuals in that listing, every example in the Bible is imperfect because they're human. We're all sinners We're all saved by his grace through faith alone. Maybe you can identify with Gideon, who was a little bit slow to answer God's call. Or maybe you are a little more like Barak, because you kind of need somebody behind you pushing you along the way. Maybe you're like Samson, and you, you let your emotions guide you in the wrong direction. Or maybe you've said some things that were incredibly painful and hurtful, like yep, the Here's the key. Don't let your mistakes or your faults discourage you from pursuing what is right. Because there's something you need to know about these people, all of these people in this list, all of these people from the word of God that we talked about today, lived by faith, it says, until they died. Listen to the author of Hebrews 11, verse 13 through 15. All of these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Hebrews 11, 39 through 40. These were all committed for their faith, yet none of them received what they had been promised. Those are incredible statements. They didn't get the reward yet that they were promised. For you and I, it's very different You see, when you and I choose to come to faith, a part of the promise that God promised these individuals so very long ago has officially been revealed and fulfilled. 
The promise is fully available to each one of us if we choose to accept it. The promise, of course, being that of the coming Christ, the coming Messiah. He has come, and he has lived a perfect life, and he has offered that life up for you and I, and he has offered that gift of forgiveness that he has fully paid for in full when you choose to come and accept him as your Lord and your Savior. These people didn't have that yet. They were waiting on that promise. That promise is here and has been fulfilled in your hearing today. You can accept that promise of God. Yes, he promises more to come, and we know he is faithful. But in the moment, we have a promise that's already been offered and fulfilled should you choose to accept it. These four men, incredibly interesting stories. I would encourage you to read their full stories. Obviously, we couldn't do that this morning. We don't have enough time. But I give you just a little bit. Pick the one that you identify with. Pick the one of those four characters that your faith, you can kind of see a piece of your faith in and study that character for yourself in your own study. Do it this afternoon and then come back tonight and worship God and thank God for including people like this in his word and for including you and I and his family forever. What a blessing. What an indescribable gift that is. Father God, as we close this portion and we, we enter into a time of reflection and, and a time of worship, Father, we are all so thankful for your word, for the opportunity we have to respond to your word. Father, for your faithfulness to us in spite of our faithlessness at times. We all have our flaws. We all have our problems. We all have our sin. Father, you already know all of that, and yet you choose to be willing to include us in your family. These men are no greater or lesser than us. If we choose to come to you, Father, we have your spirit dwelling with us, just like your spirit was guiding so many of them. Just like them, we have the opportunity to even accept your spirit and then go our own way and make incredibly poor choices. Father, I pray that we listen instead to your spirit who is here to guide us and direct us. Father, not to prevent us from enjoying this life, but Father, to prevent us from pain and suffering in this life and beyond. If there's someone here today just struggling to listen to that spirit, someone who might have accepted you long ago, but that spirit, it just, they just don't seem to be hearing it, or maybe they seem to be resisting it at every turn, I pray that today is the day that you reveal yourself even more fully to them and open their hearts and minds and lives up to the guidance of your spirit. Father, we must listen to that direction. We can find it in your word, obviously. We can find it through conversations with brothers and sisters in Christ. We can find it through music or song that we listen to. So many places to find that guidance and direction from the spirit. We must only listen. Father, if there's someone here today that has always looked on, been on the outside looking in and they, they've been exposed to this Jesus and they just say, man, there's no way he could ever accept me. There's no way he could ever use me. I know what I've done. I know who I've been. It's great for everyone else, but there's just no way. Father, let these four individuals and countless others in your word be an example to them that no, 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 no. I know you've messed up, but I love you. And I love you so much that in spite of all of that, I sent my son for you. There's no excuse that we could make that could possibly ever prevent us from being loved by you and welcomed into your presence. And so, Father, if there's anyone that needs to make that decision, 
I truly pray the Spirit convicts them and moves them to do that today. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.